0: Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of America.com with another edition of Banal of America Audio. It is February 4th, 2006. This week we have Colm Kelleher, co-author of Hunt for the Skinwalker, one of the most talked about books of the holiday season. Hunt for the Skinwalker tears the lid off the NIDS Skinwalker Ranch in Utah and takes us inside what was going on at the Skinwalker Ranch all these years and has some just amazing and chilling stories about some of the phenomena that were occurring at the Skinwalker Ranch while NIDS was doing its research. A little bit about Colm Kelleher for those of you unfamiliar with him he is a senior research scientist with a 20-year career in cell and molecular biology. Following his PhD in biochemistry from the University of Dublin Trinity College in 1983 Dr. Kelleher worked at Canada's flagship Ontario Cancer Institute, the Terry Fox Laboratory at the British Columbia Cancer Research Center in Vancouver, and the National Jewish Center for Immunology and Respiratory Medicine in Denver. More recently, Dr. Kelleher served as Research Director for Bigelow Aerospace in Las Vegas and as Administrator for one of its subsidiaries, Space Sciences, Inc. Dr. Kelleher also acted as Team Leader and Project Manager for the National Institute for Discovery Science, NIDS currently Dr. Kelleher is the director of labs for a biotechnology firm in San Francisco he has authored 38 peer-reviewed publications in molecular biology immunology biochemistry and virology as well as articles in popular magazines such as Omni his websites are colmkelleher.com that's c-o-l-m-k-e-l-l-e-h-e-r.com and huntfortheskinwalker.com is the website for the book Let me spell that for you. It's H-U-N-T-F-O-R-T-H-E-S-K-I-N-W-A-L-K-E-R.com and that's the website where you can find more information about the book he co-authored with George Knapp called Hunt for the Skinwalker. And that's what we're here to discuss this week. During the course of the interview, uh, Colm's dog was making some noise in the background, so eventually that stopped. But in case you hear some what sounds like a weird noise in the background, that's the dog. Don't worry, everything's cool. This interview was conducted on January 21st, 2006. Colm Kelleher on Banal of America Audio. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. My guest this week is Colm Kelleher. He is the co-author of Hunt for the Skinwalker, about the NIDS Ranch in Utah. And he was the project manager and team leader at a private research institute at uh, National Institute of Discovery Sciences, which is NIDS and uh, he's also well-known in esoteric circles for his mad cow and CJD research and the book Brain Trust, and he has a Ph.D. in biochemistry, and he is the guest this week on Banal of America Audio. Welcome to the show, Colm. Great to be here, Tim. Uh, Why don't you just give me a little brief bio on how you you ended up at NIDS.
1: Well, my background, as you mentioned, is in biochemistry. I was working in uh, a... Institute in Immunology in Denver, Colorado in 1996 when I saw what I thought was a very interesting ad for research managers in a new institute um, that was published in Science Magazine, which is one of the premier uh, science journals. And the ad was specifically looking for people who were willing to research the origin and evolution of consciousness in the universe. Now, how often do you see an ad like that in Science Magazine? So obviously I was intrigued enough to uh answer the ad at the same time as an immunologist um I've always been interested in the effects on the immune system of altered states and uh different different stress levels on the immune system as well as uh, as physiology in general so when uh, when I heard about this this uh new organization called the National Institute for Discovery Science um obviously I applied and uh I was successful so I moved from Denver to Las Vegas in uh, 1996 to begin working as a research manager at the National Institute for Discovery Science. And it, is, it, it was a very, very unusual organization in that it was specifically formed in order to study the quote-unquote uh, paranormal or anomalies, which included UFO sightings, uh, cattle mutilations, and, and you know, the usual cast of characters in, in paranormal phenomena. and. What was different about NIS was that it was fully funded by uh, Robert Bigelow, who was the CEO of an aerospace company and also a real estate entrepreneur in Las Vegas. So he hired a bunch of professional scientists as well as uh, a science advisory board, which had a lot of uh, expertise in different topics, including physics, chemistry, Biology. There were medical people on board. There was psychology people, computer science experts, and forensics, and all of these oh, wow. people were mainstream scientists who worked in government labs and academia. So National Institute for Discovery Science had both full-time scientists on its staff, as well as a very um, well-qualified science advisory board. So. It was not the kind of usual investigation of paranormal phenomena that people talk about. In other words, people are doing it on their own time on weekends or, or you know, during the evenings kind yeah. of thing. So, it, you know, from that perspective, I think the, the NIDF was a very unique organization.
0: Now, how long were you working for NIDS before they uh, picked up the Gorman
1: Ranch? Uh, it was very quick, actually, because... Um, the Gorman Ranch began to sort of filter out into the into the media in summer of '96. I joined in uh, August of '96, so there was a very short period um, between joining and actually um, getting involved on the ranch. My first trip to the ranch was in September '96, so oh wow, um, it was very fast actually.
0: Okay, and yeah, let me uh, just do a little background here on the book because the book is about. The ranch, the infamous Nids Ranch, uh, that many in Esoterica have heard about and talked about for so long, and finally the book has come out. Uh, it's one of the most talked-about books of the holiday season, and now uh, everybody, I hope, has either picked it up and read it, or is it going out and getting it after this interview, or they're going to shut off the interview and buy it and read it and then listen to the interview, but it's definitely, you got to check out this book. It was awesome. I loved it. And it's about this ranch. First, this family moves there. Uh, all kinds of crazy stuff happens, giant wolves, uh, UFOs, Bigfoot-type sighting things, just uh, poltergeist-type activity, crazy stuff. They eventually can't take any anymore. They move out. The NIDS, uh, the National Institute for Discovery Science, buys the ranch, and they install uh, these fine folks, these scientists of whom Colm was one of. Is that pretty much the, the gist of the story?
1: Yeah, that's that's correct. Uh, the family, I think, were, we're at the stage of mental and physical exhaustion um, by summer of 1996 and uh, so they started reaching out for help and um, word got out um, into the media and uh, we heard about it in uh, july or so of 1996 now at this stage the family had been on the property for about 20 months which is a very short time but during that period um, out of a herd of 80 cattle, which was their livelihood, they, they bred uh, high-end cattle, like yeah. black cementals, black angus. Out of a herd of 80 cattle, they had either lost, disappeared, or, or had been killed 14 animals. So oh, man. No, a normal attrition rate for this kind of an operation was one animal per year. But uh, 14 animals had disappeared or, or been killed in 20 months, and they were, they were essentially economically bankrupt. At the same time, they had been exposed to almost daily or weekly um, extremely stressful events that they could not explain. This was a salt-of-the-earth family who were, were basically looking to set up a, a ranching operation in a quiet area of northeastern Utah, and they, they just wanted to get about their business, but they were constantly besieged by phenomena they could not explain um, to the extent that they lost sleep. The kids uh, in school, um, their grades fell from straight A students all the way down to Ds, and um, they just couldn't sleep. So by the time we actually took over the property, they were all sleeping in the same living room in this small property. Um, on the floor just for for protection, basically, in numbers. They were so traumatized by what had happened. They hadn't had a decent night's sleep in a couple of months. So they were ready to get the hell out of there as quickly as possible. And and when NIDS um, saw the potential, um, we instantly purchased the ranch and set it up as an experimental laboratory in the paranormal.
0: Now, in the story, uh, you guys are investigating stuff, and often you say it, it wasn't enough to bring to the science board do you, you follow me like the uh yeah the, now what like explain to me this sort of how that was set up like they were they were they kept sort of out of the loop, but they didn't go there and check it out too. It's sort of like you would bring what you guys found to them, and then they but it wasn't ever enough
1: well that the the, um, the science advisory board uh, some of the members actually visited the property on a number of occasions, but the there were fifteen to sixteen people on the board they were all working in different parts of the country they were extremely busy in their mainstream jobs they worked in either um, research laboratories uh universities or government laboratories so they had you know very busy day jobs so every couple of months they would be flown to las vegas for a series of briefings oh, wow. from the uh the the, the nids staff who had spent all the time on the property uh we would compile all of the data that we had come up with including any photographs any uh tracings uh, magnetic field tracings any any videotape and uh we would We would essentially go into these exhaustive briefings over a several day period, and the science advisory board were looking for um evidence that was deemed acceptable in mainstream science and and you know they were they were pretty strict about adhering to uh scientific protocols so um all of the evidence that was collected, uh, certainly in the initial stages, were, were basically eyewitness testimony from uh, NIDS researchers who were on the property. They saw weird stuff. A lot of the stuff that we saw was very transient. It was difficult to capture on film because it was there one moment and then it was gone the next. Yeah. Um, it rarely reappeared in, in exactly the same spot. So you know, setting up cameras, we, which we did in, in a particular area, Sometimes didn't yield the kind of results that the science advisory board was looking for, um, but in general, they were extremely supportive. I mean, they, oh, some good. of them actually became mentors to the the project, and they were in uh, touch by either telephone or by email practically every week. So it was not sort of like this this group of scientists who were sort of removed from the whole project. They were extremely well aware of what was going on on a weekly basis, but they they were flown to Las Vegas every couple of months and, and given these extended briefings that lasted over a few days.
0: And now you know about how, uh, the, how the paranormal, so there's a stigma attached to it, to uh, studying it. Was, were the scientists on the science board and you guys at the ranch and stuff, was it sort of kept on the down low with these guys so it wouldn't hurt their reputation,
1: or, or was it pretty well known that they
0: were part of the NIDS
1: board? Uh, some of them um, did agree to, uh, to release their names publicly and their association with NIDS, but quite a few of them uh, refused because, for exactly the, the, the reasons you've given. And to this to this day, there are several members of the science, NIDS science advisory board whose names have never been made made public, and that is because some of them were extremely well known in their own uh, fields of science and. Uh, they, their reputations would be tainted by association with, uh, with with this kind of a study, no matter how rigorous and no matter how scientific yeah. uh, this study was. The fact is that that it is is considered totally off limits by uh, by mainstream science. It is considered uh, flaky. It is damaging to one's career. You can you can lose research grants. You can lose your reputation. And once your reputation is gone in science, obviously everything else starts going down the toilet. Yeah, exactly.
0: Now, maybe you can answer this question for me. It was kind of a, like I'm I'm just a suburban guy. I didn't understand this. The Gormans lost a lot of cattle. Then they moved, uh, but there was still cattle at the NIDS ranch. Did they not move the cattle, or how how did that work out? Or was this NIDS well, provided the, the
1: cattle? the NIDS organization actually purchased a lot of the cattle from the Gormans in order to uh, to set up Exactly the same conditions on the property um, as as had been experienced in the twenty months before we bought it so uh, we actually the organization actually owned the cattle uh, they had been sold by the Gormans to nids and uh, so we installed them essentially to keep the the environment in as close approximation as previously so when the Gormans moved off they um, they had other uh, they moved to uh, about twenty five miles away from the property um the uh, tom gorman the the uh the family guy uh, was kept on at nids as as a ranch manager for a few years because he was absolutely outraged at uh, having been thrown out, off his property um uh, by something he had no idea of, of was constituting the, 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 the force that, that forced him to move off. So he was determined to find out as much as possible. He was looking to NIDS to see if he could find some answers. Yeah. So he, he joined the NIDS organization as, as a ranch manager on the property. So he became a ranch manager on the very same property that he had owned um, in the previous 20 months. And he did it purely to find out some more answers. and. Uh, you know this this guy was the salt of the earth he was not sort of given to uh delusions or sort of uh, fantasies he was he was extremely interested in whatever had killed his cattle because you know it was a violation of his own privacy it was a violation of his of his property rights and he had no idea of who or what was doing this to him or had done it to him so he stayed on. The rest of the family moved off uh, to about 25 miles distance. Then a few years later, they moved out of state, and they've been trying to put this whole episode behind them. They don't want to be talked about or they don't want to be contacted.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, now, when, when you guys first got to the ranch, he suggested a less-is-more type attitude in studying. Do you think you guys um, went along with that, or do you, you think you didn't go along with it enough, or what did you think of that sort of uh, perspective on doing the study of the ranch?
1: Well we moved onto the property as quickly as possible. Um, We installed a command and control center on the property right beside where the the rancher had been living for the previous 20 months. We brought in a lot of equipment including recording equipment um, and we installed people uh, 724 on the property. the Gormans, especially Tom Gorman, was was advising us to. And, and, and in hindsight, it, it may have been wise to, to, to take his advice. But we were intent on uh, tracking whatever this thing is as, as, as quickly as possible. So, his advice was: um, take it softly, softly. Set up a command and control centre, you know, 10 miles away beyond the property as if you were hunting an extremely skittish wild animal was his the advice he gave us. Yeah. We decided in the interests of time and the interests of uh, of uh, getting data as quickly as possible to to move quicker than Tom Gorman was uh, was advising but you know, as it turned out, there was still plenty of activity on the oh, property yeah. um, when we moved on. It was not like everything shut down, but there was a, a difference in flavor to the the, the the events that happened once we moved on and, uh, you know, the Gormans had moved out. Now,
0: were you, did you ever live, like, on the ranch? I know uh, you guys, sometimes they would spend time there. Did you actually spend time there and live there? Or earlier in the book you referenced being flown from Vegas to the ranch uh, when that first calf gets
1: gets. Flown? Yeah, well, beginning in uh, in 1996, in, in September of 1996, uh, we, we would be on the ranch. We would live on the ranch for five, seven days. And then we would uh, we would come back to Vegas for a couple of days. Then we would go back to the ranch for five seven days. So uh, we were living most of the time on the ranch for the first year year and a half, um, with the exception being uh, once the the temperature plunged down below zero up in northeastern Utah. Oh yeah. Uh, we came back to Vegas. Uh, we were in constant daily conversations with uh, Tom Gorman, and he would report anything unusual. We would make the decision to fly up there or, or not. Uh, we did have a private jet at our disposal, which is an unusual uh, facility for a research team. Um, and you know, as you mentioned, in March of 1997, um, we were actually on the point of of going up there anyway when we got the call that a, uh, a an 84-pound calf had been dismembered in broad daylight on the property. So we we got on the private jet, we moved up to uh, to Utah. We were standing over the animal within. Um, Literally four or five hours of the phone call, and that uh, the animal was lying on the grass with uh with its both its its all four legs spread eagled on the grass um, all of the internal organs were gone the the ribs had been cut open, and uh, everything was with the the entire body cavity was empty. Um, there was not a drop of blood on the animal or underneath the animal, and um, this had all happened a few hours previously when uh, Tom Gorman and his wife were tagging these new, new, uh, newly born calves. Uh, they had just tagged this particular animal, moved down the property about 300 yards to tag another animal, when um, they noticed the dog that was with them uh, was began behaving kind of strangely. Yeah. Um, So they went back uh, to investigate the source of of the the dog's discomfort and they found this calf. They had just tagged 45 minutes earlier. And remember this is like 11 o'clock in the morning. This was a bright sunny day. Everything looked peaceful except for the fact that this calf that they had tagged previously had com- been completely dismembered um, in broad daylight with no sound. Um, these two people were only 300 yards away. Both had excellent hearing, both had excellent eyesight. They didn't see or, or hear a thing. So um, we had a veterinarian as part of the research team um, who instantly started conducting a necropsy on the, uh, on the dead calf first thing he noticed was that the the ear which had carried this this new ear tag had been sliced off to the skull and um, his initial impressions was a sharp instrument had been used. But he took samples anyway, he sent those samples to three three different independent uh, veterinary pathology labs who confirmed his initial observation that sharp instruments had been used on this ear. There was also one of the femur bones had been forcibly ripped out of the animal and was lying on the grass about 10 feet away from the animal when we discovered it. We packaged this bone off, uh, sent it to one of the top forensic laboratories in the country um, who came back then later saying that uh, two separate different sharp instruments had been used on this bone, one a heavy machete instrument and the other like a light, like tweezers, scissors yeah. kind of instrument. So there was there was strong evidence that this animal certainly had been killed in association with sharp instruments. Um, the cause of death was not immediately known except the animal had been totally dismembered. Um, and the the fact that there was not a single drop of blood on the on the animal or underneath the animal was really spooky to look at because this animal should have had between 2 and 3 liters of blood. Oh yeah. If yeah. you slash an animal's throat, you know, there's blood everywhere, you know, when you when you're killing them. And to have this done completely silently in the presence of a couple of of very alert people 300 yards away is even more spooky. So uh we got the services of a, of a professional tracker um, on the spot to start looking for tracks. He spent the next several days quartering the property um, within a quarter to half a mile radius of this dead animal and found pretty well no tracks, no evidence whatsoever. And this guy made, makes a living from tracking, so it's yeah. not like this was the first time he was doing this and there was no tracks whatsoever. So. Whatever happened in terms of this 84-pound calf um, was a pretty unique method of killing. It it showed signs of tremendous force. In other words, it does take a lot of force to rip the femur away from the ball and socket joint, tear all the ligaments from the femur of even a a newborn calf, and uh, lay it on the grass. And the way the animal had been laid on the grass also was very unusual. That It was obviously placed there, um, carefully placed there, it was not thrown there in a heap of, uh, of bones and flesh. It was carefully placed there, with all four legs spreading to you know different points. Of the campus. it was it was obviously very carefully done. Whatever that operation or whoever did did that operation, so the forensic analysis definitely tied it to sharp an, uh, sharp instruments. So there was this was not a predator attack. It was it was a very skillful operation carried out by people who were uh, fairly well acquainted with surgery.
0: Now one thing that stood out for me when I was reading the book uh, was sort of on uh, the theme of digging because uh, when the Gormans first bought the ranch and the property in the sale it was that they couldn't dig without prior permission or something like that. Yeah. And then later you say uh, you guys consulted some remote viewers and they said there was something under the ground and then later you said you guys dug into uh, the ground at some point, and it seemed to cause more uh, seemed to cause some UFOs to come around did you How extensive did you guys investigate that aspect of the ranch?
1: Well, we actually imported a uh, a a big caterpillar um, digger up onto the property yeah and, and and we used that to periodically dig these large trenches on the property because the Gorman family had told us a series of anecdotes when they started um, changing the overall topography that they, they found that, that it seemed to be a signal for an increase in intensity of this activity. So we decided to see if we could stimulate the, the activity yeah, because yeah. it was it was very, very difficult to capture anything um, on the fly, so to speak, because we never knew when or where anything would erupt or what kind of incidents would happen. So. Yeah we decided to try to be more proactive, so we started digging on the property. Um, large 50-yard uh, long trenches, this kind of thing, alter the, the topography, and in several cases, within, say, 72, 96 hours, neighbors would begin reporting increases in that activity. Uh, we never actually captured the activity, the so-called quote-unquote response to digging on the property, but we did find that it, it did seem to elicit some kind of a reaction, albeit a a delayed reaction. But we were never able to capture the evidence of that reaction on, uh, you know, in a way that that the science advisory board found acceptable. Yeah.
0: Now, uh, during all this time, you guys were at the ranch because of the original publicity for the Gormans. It became uh, quite a hotbed of rumors in the esoteric world. What did you think about that at the time? And, and were you hearing from uh, people in, you know, ufology and cryptozoology in various fields trying to get
1: information on what was going on there? Yeah, we, we were getting uh, – we were getting – I'd say weekly to mon- monthly communications from all of the above people who wanted to get on the property, people who had heard about uh, what the Gorman family had been through. They had heard about Nids uh, purchasing the property because that made the the media also. Yeah. That there was there was a couple of newspaper stories about it, uh, so it became notorious very quickly and. We decided to try to professionalise this uh, this investigation by um, basically clamping down on publicity and and try to set this. This area up as a laboratory of the paranormal, yeah. install equipment, install personnel, and do scientific research without being disturbed by uh, by you know people who are trying to encroach on the property, people who are trying to get on the property for whatever reason. So, the idea was that if and when anything materialized in terms of scientific validity from this uh, investigation on the property, then we would be we'd be in a position to publish it, we'd be in a position to talk about it. But before that. Um, we were we had no intention of, uh, of publicizing what we were doing, yeah. and um, that's in our view still a legitimate way to conduct science. Um, oh, yeah. Science by press conference is always a bad idea, and this, of course, led to a whole slew of rumors in the uh, in the esoteric fields that, you know, we were covering up evidence that we were in contact with aliens, that we were, you know, trying yeah. to, uh, you know, invite the CIA onto the property, this kind of thing. So. Mm-hmm. It was There was multiple different uh, consp- conspiracy scenarios spun out of the fact that we were not willing to go on the record about the kind of research we were doing. And the reason we weren't willing to go on the record was because we were trying to conduct a legitimate scientific investigation. And the idea is to gather the, the, uh, the data before you actually start talking about it. Yeah. Yes.
0: Did you have a lot of incidents where people trying to break into the ranch, or was it pretty like uh, after a
1: while, like people knew not to bother, with, like Area
0: Fifty One type of situation?
1: Well, we, yeah, we we had uh, we had constant surveillance of the property per- perimeters, and actually that that surveillance continues to this day. So, it was uh, it, it's it was always monitored. There were people always there. And there still are. So, I mean, it, it, it was difficult for people to encroach on the property, even though some people did try. Yeah. There was, uh, there was. It, it, it became pretty um, obvious during the um, during the tenure of Nids on the on the property that there were, you know, police would be called, poli- and 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 any trespassers would be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. So. There was an active discouragement of uh, people getting on the property, and it was pretty successful. We, after the first um, spate of uh, media publicity died down, there were very few incursions. Well, that's good.
0: Now, um, now I know Ned sort of has stepped down uh, on the ranch investigation, but you also, you guys did the Black Triangle UFO study, and you did sort of like a sister investigation in Dulce. Uh, what other sort of uh, studies have you guys done that you can talk about, uh, or anything like that?
1: Um, we've looked. We've looked in a dif- uh, several different areas around the country. Primarily, as you mentioned, Dulce, New Mexico, and also uh, northeastern Utah. But we've we've done a fair number of studies down uh, around in the Buckeye area in Arizona, yep. where there's been a lot of uh, a lot of reported sightings. Where the, you know the famous Phoenix Triangle. Was associated with that area, or, or, and, and we, we've, we've gone to targeted areas in California on, on occasion to investigate uh, alleged uh, alleged incursions. And also, um, we've actually gone out east on the on the odd occasion too. But primarily, our focus has been in the southwest of the country. Yeah.
0: So uh, we, we we have
1: investigated. Uh, you know, we 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 actually sent people out to uh, to Illinois during the uh, the famous uh, January 2000 uh, Black Triangle incident uh, okay, yeah. that flew over Scott Air Force Base. So NIDS NIDS was pretty active around the country in investigating targeted sightings that were considered. Um, you know considered worthy of investigation, but in general, the, the vast majority of the time, especially during the years 1996 through 2000, were spent either in uh, northern New Mexico or in northern, northeastern Utah. And
0: what made you guys decide to uh, do sort of like a separate study on the Black Triangle uh, UFOs?
1: Well, it, it basically fell across the, uh, the desk, and w- once we had published the results of the uh, of the Illinois sighting. it became sort of commonplace for people to start reporting uh, sightings of these mysterious black triangles on uh, to our website and we got hundreds and hundreds of reports so it was uh, it was not by design that we jumped into the Black triangle thing and people started contacting us people started reporting these incidents yeah. we actually opened a hotline and we got. We got, you know, literally hundreds of, of oh, wow. different uh, incidents from around the country, and we we interviewed all of the people involved. In some cases, you know, um, 17 to 20 eyewitnesses. For example, there was another famous one in Carteret, New Jersey, in uh, 2001 that we investigated. We we uh, interviewed about 20 separate eyewitnesses, and we triangulated the uh, you know the, uh, the the sighting, but. In general I think the uh the so called skinwalker ranch became what was and continued to be a pretty unique um, area where the a laboratory of these unusual incidents could be set up and uh and studied very very closely because that's one of the that's one of the holy grails really in in this kind of research is to is to really focus as deeply as possible and um and gather as as many data as possible on as many incidents as possible, and that's what we did in Utah. And the the results that came out of it as we published in this book was a bewildering variety of different incidents that spanned all across the field of cryptozoology, paranormal, ghost hunting, um, ufology, all of these phenomena have been divided neatly into into different categories. And uh, what was really astounding about the uh, the Utah the Utah experience was that these boundaries seemed to be totally irrelevant to what what was unfolding on the property in Utah. It 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 was one moment it was cryptozoology, the next moment it was these weird flying objects, including these uh, large black triangles. The next moment it would be silver discs or Mexican hat-shaped UFOs, and next minute would be cattle mutilation. So, it seemed to be a Grand Central Station where multiple um, incidents erupted. And uh, as as we mentioned in the book, there has been a tra- traditional sort of separation between these d- disciplines. Crypto- yes, yes. don't usually study uh, UFOs, and nuts and bolts Uf- UFOlogists don't usually study Bigfoot and, uh, you know, ghost hunters tend to keep their distance and uh, people who were who, who into discarnate voices and hauntings and poltergeist activity tend to view the whole UFO subject with disdain. And so there's, there's these multiple camps in, in, in these esoteric areas that are completely separate, but the Utah ranch, this, the so-called Skinwalker Ranch, had the effect of uniting all of these. And, we were in a position of having either to throw out the data or else include all of the data. And we, we were determined to keep an open mind on this whole uh, project and, and to recount, to, uh, to document all of these incidents as closely as possible and not throw anything out because they didn't fit into a particular pigeonhole. You know, just because in exactly the same pro- uh, area of the property, a flying object had been witnessed uh, a week before where um, this week there was a, a dead cow that had obviously been sliced up. Um, was there a connection between these two incidents? We have no way of knowing, but there was certainly a geographical connection in that they they had happened uh, right on the same spot in the, in, in the same area of the property. Uh, we still have no idea of, uh, whether or not there was a, a temporal or a, a, a cause and effect connection between these kinds of disparate incidents, or was there was it some kind of a, an attractor, sort of a geographical attractor, for whatever reason, this this particular property was attracting uh, all this weird stuff. I should also mention that um, this ranch is located in an area of northeastern Utah that has had at least a 50-year history, possibly even longer of a whole variety of uh, bizarre flying object incidents, UFO incidents going back to about 1950, 1951. The reason we know that is that um, way back at that time, um, this, the local science teacher at, in, in, the, in the local high school began to collect um, the, the reports that were coming in from the local population, and he, was, uh, he, he had sufficient credibility in the, in the local community that he was able to collect these incidents and keep confidentiality. So he accumulated over the years hundreds and hundreds of high quality reports and the ranch is located exactly in the in the center of that whole area that had been subject to all this weird activity since the uh, early 1950s now whether or not the the incidents that were happening on the ranch were a good snapshot of the incidents that were happening elsewhere we don't know because we know that this retired school teacher um had collected so many different incidents over time that he began to skew the collection method towards only the most spectacular sightings of flying objects because his his feeling was he could spend all day every day interviewing people regarding all of the different weird things that had happened to them in this in this area of Utah he decided to uh, to skew his uh, his his investigation only towards the most Spectacular multiple incident sightings of UFOs. So, a lot of the stuff that uh, that that had happened on the property had also happened in in different areas of Utah, but it just simply w- were not reported.
0: Now, like you just spoke to the sociological aspects of the different. Um sects of research in esoterica and that sort of speaks to uh, the the only real skeptical argument i've heard from anyone is, is that they sort of just shut down when they hear about all the incidents and they say that's too much that's too much for
1: one for one thing. Right. have you heard that sort of argument from people before definitely yes uh, and and it's curious because um, it really i think is is a it it, it it is severely dependent on the amount of time that you spend in a, in a given location and it, it is dependent on the amount of trust that the local people have over the years we we did gain a lot of trust from the from the local inhabitants and uh, we were able to uh, to to get from them a lot of the, the the kinds of incidents that had happened to them that and there was a lot of overlap with uh, with what had happened on the ranch. So when when people say it's too much, you know, it may be just a matter of uh, the fact that, that that they have not spent enough time investigating a particular property. You know, for yeah. for, oh, yeah. for for for. Uh, weeks or or even months at a time, so um, we actually saw exactly the same thing in uh, in northern New Mexico. We arrived we began investigating The first thing we heard was there was a bunch of strange uFO incidents but the, digger, the the deeper we began to dig, the more and more incidents that began to emerge and and you know people were were sort of Less willing to come up front with a lot of strange incidents than they were, sort of to recount um, sort of the usual UFOs flying over. But the deeper you dug, the weirder the inc- incidents became as the trust was built up. So, we think that uh, there was probably a, f- a factor in that. And many in many of these so-called hotspots around the country, if you spend a lot of time digging, you find a lot more uh, than you originally encounter.
0: Yeah. Now. Um Robert Bigelow. He obviously bought the ranch. Was the NIDS project sort of like a side thing for him? Did he? The main question is: Did he ever go to the ranch? Did he ever go and check it out himself, or was it sort of like this is a side, like an R and D type thing for his enterprise?
1: Oh, he uh, he spent uh, weeks, uh, literally on the on the ranch, uh, conducting night watches with uh, with the oh, wow. staff. Uh, you know i mean he he was he was right hands on on the property he was he was up there with uh, night vision binoculars till 4 or 5 a.m. watching just like everybody else uh, he was he was totally captivated by uh by all of these uh you know the, the the scientific way of uh, of looking at this, because that's why he funded this whole thing was was to to see if he could get some answers um, to these uh, unusual phenomena. So he was not kind of a remote figure that was sort of. Uh, off, uh, off doing other stuff. He was very much involved with the uh with the property, very much involved with the research and on a daily basis, um, he was either calling people or or we were calling him based on uh on incidents if he couldn't actually be there. So he was a very hands on uh, research guy. Yeah. Alright, what do you say to
0: the people who uh who were like the, well, obviously, uh, in the esoteric field, there's always a want for money. Pretty much, everybody needs money uh, to do the research. And what do you say to the critics who are like, "Why won't he spend money on my, on my developing research?" And do you ever get people who say that kind of thing?
1: Well, we we got numerous, um, you know, applications for funding from everybody from the the SETI people, the so-called search for extraterrestrial oh, people. Uh, we, we got uh, we got almost weekly um, requests for for various funding of various projects, and um, what we what we did in response to some of these requests was uh, we actually did um, investigate some of these, but on on NID's terms. In other words, Robert Bigelow did did fund some of these research projects, um, but NIDS had to be involved in the research because we weren't just gonna throw money at uh, at these kinds of idle sort of uh, uh, requests for money without making absolutely sure that there was a good business case to be made in terms of return on investment. Uh, That may sound sort of uh, harshly business-like, but NIDS was, was run completely professionally as a business organization you know, individual yes. time was accounted for, individual effort was accounted for, so there was none of this kind of, uh, let's throw $10,000 at this person who, who, who wants to, you know, who wants to, uh, set up some kind of a monitoring station somewhere. Um, if we were going to be involved, certainly financially, um, we were going to be involved physically too. Yeah.
0: Now, uh, like as you allude to in the book, the activity at the ranch sort of tapered down. Is that what factored in you guys' decision to release the book now? Because uh, like you said before, you weren't really interested in publicity. And now obviously with this book, you're going to have to pay extra for security up there.
1: Well, the main driver for for uh, actually publicizing this was George Knapp, who co-wrote the book. Yeah. Um, because in, in two thousand and two, he's had a long, long-standing relationship with Robert Bigelow that even precedes the formation of MIDS. And um, so he, what he wanted to do was to go on the record, if possible, with uh, with some of the incidents on the property. And um, in two thousand and two, and we agreed to it because. We thought it would be a good way of finding out from the feedback to this publicity, um, the, the numbers of, of other hotspots around the country. Oh, yeah. Indeed, around the world. So we did it with our eyes open, knowing that there would be an increase in publicity, which is exactly what happened. So we got a lot of feedback. Uh, George Knapp wrote two articles in the local Las Vegas newspaper that, you know, they were called, uh, Path of the Skinwalker, and they, they really, Went around the world, literally went around the world. Our website was getting, you know, thousands of thousands of hits from all around the world. Um, so subsequent to that, um, George was the the the, uh, the main driver in uh, in in saying, and and Robert Bigelow did agree to this that uh, some of the events could be described in, in book form. And uh, this is really a sort of a personal narrative of uh, of my time and. Uh, George's investigative time on the uh, on on this property um, over the, uh, the the span of the research project. Now NIDS does still exist; it uh, it it is on ice. But um, if there if there is any major resurgence in the kinds of activity that we were exposed to in 1996 and uh, 1997, 98, then uh, you know new people would be hired and uh, and and the whole thing would be revived. But um, the property still exists. It is still um, still ongoing activity at a, at a much lower level, but, you know, and it is still under surveillance. So um, the, the same thing um, applies to people who are thinking of encroaching on the property as it did back in 1996, 1997.
0: They are not welcome. <laughs> you heard that. People don't show up there. Um, you said yeah, the point of the book was to get feedback. Um, so far, obviously, the book's only been out for like two months, maybe three months now. What what would you say about the feedback you've gotten so far? How how's it shaped up?
1: Well, the feedback has been enormous, actually. the um, the it, It's it's been uh, on on. All sorts of email lists. It's uh, it, it's it's been uh, sold out on Amazon.com a couple of times. It's been nice. It's it's actually in a second printing now. Oh, wow. um, already, and it only came out in December sixth, which is so. Uh, oh. So a lot of copies are, are uh, people are, are really interested in finding out what exactly happened on this property. So, yeah, it, it's it's doing really well, and we've we've got a lot of uh, we've we've got a lot of interested interesting feedback from, uh, from different folks. Now, you know, there's a lot of, of people who are talking about similar incidents that have happened, and it's becoming really obvious that the ranch may not be as, as unique as, uh, as people have talked about. Yeah.
0: Now, at the end of the book, you, you go through a, a variety of scenarios that may have been the source of, of, of the activity at the ranch. What,
1: where are you, where you sort of lean
0: yourself personally? Uh, what do you think? Interdimensional type of situation?
1: Well, one of, one of the things that um, Tom Gorman used to talk about all of the time was uh, this, this peculiar um, thing that he used to see up a, about a mile from, his, uh, from where, where he lived. On the, and this was still on the property. This large orange object would appear out of nowhere. And he, he, he took to uh, spending a lot of time out on on his property looking at this uh this orange object. Yeah. And um occasionally with a scope, um, he would look into this orange object and he told me on a couple of occasions he saw like a different sky, um, different shape or different color sky through the scope through this orange object. And um it he figured it was some kind of a different world out there. We never actually saw that. Um, we only saw the, uh, the, you know, the the, the different phenomena. As, as I mentioned, you know, the, the the Gorman looking through the the scope, this rifle scope, at the uh, at what was in the Orange Hole. On on one occasion, he actually saw. Um, through the scope, this black object that was uh, obviously moving quickly from this other side, so to speak, yeah. moving in his direction. Um, he could see it against the clear blue sky. And as as it moved in his direction, um, it was getting bigger and bigger, and it was moving extremely quickly. He lost it once it transited into the the darkness from where he was, but it came from what looked like a bright sky, you know, from... from uh, as he looked through it. Yeah. So he figured, you know, maybe that was some kind of evidence for uh, something, you know, to do with different dimensions or different realities. Um, Whether or not that explains all of the events, we don't have enough evidence to really pinpoint. Yeah. But, you know, the dimensional explanation is certainly an attractive one in that you know all of the, where, did, where did all of these weird animals come from that uh, that were tracked on that property yeah. you know Gorman used to talk about these these incredibly brightly colored tiny birds that were more like tropical birds that appeared and disappeared there were these large wolves that were on the property that were seen not only by the Gormans but by neighbors and there was a variety of uh, different animals that NID staff encountered that um, were actually shot at on a number of occasions and uh, there were no no blood, no tracks kind of thing. Um, So where did those animals come from? We we really have no way of knowing because there was so little physical evidence left on the ground following something like that. The exception being, of course, the uh, dismembered calf that I talked about and and yeah. occasionally uh there was there were other um animals mutilated on the property too.
0: Now when in your time out there, what was the single like freakiest moment for you where you were like, this is just this is paranormal, man, this is crazy. What was the scariest thing for
1: you as a modest? Well, I think in June nineteen ninety seven when um myself and this physicist were standing out on the property, we were right out in the middle of this small pasture where previously, um, the the previous week, a really spectacular series of infrared images had been photographed um, in this small pasture. And so we were staking the place out to see if we could recapture some of those. uh, If if anything was going to happen, we would capture on on infrared film. So um, this was about midnight. It was June. It was completely quiet. This place is so isolated, you know, it's, it's... the only thing you can see is the is the is the night sky. Really, everything else is just black around the place. So, um, about probably about seventy to hundred feet to uh, our left, um, suddenly out of nowhere, the, the the whole place lit up. This basketball-sized object that was bluish white was hovering about fifteen feet off the ground. It was emitting this intense blue-white light. Um, showed up on the ground and it was just hovering there. Um, it bounced, it seemed like it was bouncing slightly and then five seconds later it just suddenly disappeared. So we had these uh, these law enforcement type flashlights that are, you know, you can light up the whole pasture instantly. Yeah. So we slammed them on and uh, ran over to the spot. There was absolutely nothing there. There was no evidence anything had happened. So we were kind of, um, Definitely in in alert mode at that stage, so we went back to the original spot, shut off the spotlight that the uh, the, the flashlights, and resumed operations. Uh, operation. So the physicist with, with with me had a a set of um, ITt night vision binoculars, which are ambient light enhancement yes. uh, binoculars and he was scanning the perimeter of the field. I was focusing on, uh, I had a camera with infrared film. The idea was to to try to um, get infrared shots like the investigator had done previously in that same spot. So physicists started reporting that right in front of him was uh, about, there was a bank of trees about 100 feet right in front of us. He started reporting this big black um, amorphous, it almost looked like a cloud, was in the tree line, moving um, within the trees, block, blocking out all the stars behind as he was looking through his infrared, infrared binoculars. Now, standing right beside him, I started taking these uh, infrared photographs, see if we, we could have record anything. Yeah. But he, the physicist became very agitated. He said that something had interfered, interfered with him, had locked onto his brain, as they, I oh, think is how he described it later but, um, that some voice was telling him that he, that, uh, he was being watched or or we were being watched. So remember, this was out in the black of night. We were sort of standing totally defenseless with whatever was in the darkness a hundred feet ahead. Um, basically, um, informing this, uh, this NASA physicist who was, uh, you know, I mean, the guy was not prone to fantasy and that, that he was being watched. Um, so, um, naturally, you know, he, he started getting very agitated, so he then reported this thing moving through the trees slowly. It began to collapse in on itself, is the way he described it, and uh, gradually just kind of vanished. So during that whole period, I was taking uh, these long exposure infrared photographs, and yeah. eventually, you know, when we developed the the, uh, the film, there was they, there was very, very little you could see on the phone. Certainly, nothing you could really analyse with any any confidence. So that was one of the incidents because it it it, it really sort of drove at home how completely defenceless we were out there in the middle of nowhere. Um, we did obviously have a, have a system of backup if if there was any any real trouble, but it was it was uh, definitely a spooky incident.
0: Now, do you find like you lived through that situation and everything? But did you find it frustrating then when you tried to like uh, to to produce some kind of evidence, but it was never really forthcoming? Like, but you obviously you experienced it. You know what you know what's going on there. So, was it frustrating?
1: Well, we found it obviously very frustrating because. Um, you know the, the the basic premise of a scientific investigation is is to gather evidence and and gather evidence that's re- reproducible. Um, so when you when you're in a situation where none of the variables are controlled, when you have no way of uh, of being at the right place at the right time, you've you've no way of controlling any part of the experiment. You're basically at the, at the mercy of something that is out there. You you've no idea what it is. So. That, that part of the, of the whole investigative process became very frustrating because we were, as the book title says, Hunt for the Skinwalker, we were hunting something. We didn't know what it was. We, we knew that it had terrorized this family for 20 months. We knew that all of these incidents were happening on our watch. You know, we were, we were constantly chasing something that was ephemeral. It was transient. It was, it was, you know, that we could not get a, our teeth into it it all always seemed to be one step ahead of us, and it it, it displayed some parts of this whole uh, trickster mentality or trickster, um, you know, uh, category that yeah. that a lot of the Native Americans talk about. And in that, it is totally unexpected. It is it is never never predictable, and uh, it's it's almost we got the feeling at times that it was almost toying with us. And that may have been our sort of, uh, our way of interpreting what was happening, but there did seem to be this whole trickster phenomenon um, that was was going on. So, yeah, from a scientific perspective, it was a very, very frustrating cat and mouse game because, you know, we had the psychology of uh, we're going after this thing, we're going to capture whatever we can um, on film, we're going to write it up, we're going to document it, and hopefully we're going to uh, publish a paper on it. Yeah. So, I mean, that was our perspective, and this uh, whatever this was on the property was not cooperating in any <laughs> way. Um, now, I'm always interested in what the
0: perspective of the people who are featured in a book, like after it comes out, did, they, did Tom Gorman or his wife or his kids or anything, Do they read the book? Have you heard from them post-publication uh, of Hunt for
1: the Skinwalker? Uh, not so far, but uh, uh, we did make a, a promise. To the family, to protect the family as much as humanly possible from any publicity, so we changed their names, we uh, we we altered certain parts of uh, of of their background and that kind of thing to make sure that um, people would not start to try try to track them. Even though you know there was um, there was a publicity about them in 1996, and people were. Who were diligent enough will probably be able to uh, track back, get their original names, etc. But our our promise to the family was: look, we we are not in any way interested in uh, in disturbing uh, disturbing your peace of mind. So the idea is not to uh, not to contact the the family and and to let them live their lives. They want to put this whole whole thing behind them. They were they were terrorized and they were traumatized by something they, they don't understand. But, you know, they've been living a life in another state for yeah. many, many years. They've had no no recurrence of these incidents and, and they want to just get on with their lives because not only were they terrorized on their property, but the local community uh, where they were living in Northeastern Utah um, didn't take particularly kindly to this, uh, this sudden upsurge in in bizarre, wild stories that yeah. was, was was centered in their small community. They're a very private uh, community in northeastern Utah. Um, very religious, and, and you know, they're not they're not really too keen on a lot of media attention.
0: Yeah. Um, and uh, wh- final question, really, uh, what's next for you, and, and then NIDS in general?
1: Well, I think NIDS is, is going to be uh, reactivated when and if. Um, there, it's deemed that there's enough activity to really, uh, really get get the, the research, serious research, into. Um, from my perspective, um, I'm now currently empo- employed in the biotechnology industry. My background is in molecular biology yeah. and uh, in uh, in biochemistry, so I'm back doing what I was doing before this uh, this project came up way back in 1996. So. Oh wow. Um, I, I you know, I'm obviously extremely interested in uh in, in looking at all of these esoteric subjects, but I'm not particularly interested in spending the rest of my life full time um exploring these topics because our experience uh at 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 the uh the skinwalker ranch was that um the more you chase something like this, the more opaque it becomes. So um these kinds of topics from my perspective, you can spend a whole lifetime and and really get nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. See so it's just
0: better to not wash the pot uh, and then
1: it'll boil sort of thing. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Um, and the book is available, uh, like you said, via Amazon.com. Is it in the bookstores too? Barnes and Noble, Borders. Yep. Yeah, it's, uh,
1: it's it's in Borders, Barnes and Noble. It's it's in bookstores nationwide. Awesome. Um, in in many cases, as I mentioned, it's been sold out. So if it's not there when you go there, you know you can certainly order it. Yeah. Amazon.com. There's also our website, HuntForTheSkinwalker.com, which is, you know, uh, it's got some added information yeah. there and also. Uh, some some of the uh, photographs, that kind of thing from the from the property. So, um, it's it's uh, it's an interesting read. Yeah, I highly
0: recommend it. It was a it was a really good book. I enjoyed it a lot. I I whipped right through it like in uh, three or four days. And uh, it's just chilling at times. It's frightening. It's it's exciting. It's like you said. It's a hunt, and and you're sort of in on the hunt. And uh, I really enjoyed it a lot. I highly recommend it. I have a feeling many of the listeners have already read the book because everybody was talking about it the last since December when it came out. And hopefully, those who are sitting on their duff will have uh, gone out and picked it up and check it out. Um, and do you have an, an additional website uh, that you want me to mention?
1: Um, I do have the website on the uh, on the Mad Cow um, yeah. Brain Trust book, which is. Uh, com c o l m k e l l e h e r
0: and are uh, you going to do any more mad cow stuff in the future you think
1: yeah i am th- I'm, I'm very interested in this uh in this whole subject and i think uh as time goes on and this whole link between chronic wasting disease and uh and uh humans eating uh potentially contaminated venison is an additional layer of complexity onto the um onto the mad cow situation that already is here in North America. So I'll be keeping a close eye on that too.
0: Awesome. Maybe in the future I can have you back and we'll talk about that. Thank you very much, Colin Kelleher, for appearing on Vanal America Audio. It was a great interview and I appreciated uh you giving me the time to talk about the book. The book is Hunt for the Skinwalker. As he said it's available nationwide. Pick it up. Read it. You're gonna love it. Call and tell her. Thank you very much.
1: You're very welcome. Glad to be here.
0: That does it for this week's edition of Been of America Audio. I want to thank Colm Kelleher for stopping by and being on the show. You can find out more information on Colm Kelleher at www.colmkelleher.com. That's C-O-L-M-K-E-L-L-E-H-E-R.com. And you can find more information about the book at www.huntfortheskinwalker.com. And that's H-U-N-T-F-O-R-T-H-E-S-K-I-N-W-A-L-K-E-R.com. Big thanks to Leslie and Chiron of beenallofamerica.com for your help and support with the audio series. And big thanks to R. Lee of beenallofamerica.com, one of our newest columnists. She's been on board for about six weeks or so here at beenallofamerica.com. And she's been a great help with the audio series as well, so thank you, R. Lee. And, of course, I want to thank all the great listeners out there who have found us uh, worldwide. I'm getting emails from all over the world. It's really amazing, and I'm seeing... Links to Benall of America audio posted all over the internet, and it's just amazing, and I really appreciate it. You can find daily updates, sometimes twice a day, on rare occasions three times a day. Updates at benallofamerica.com. Columnists Leslie Chiron, R Lee, they put out weekly columns. They are amazing stuff. You've got to check those out. I, of course, write the banal Report and a couple other columns and feature articles at benallofamerica.com. If you are just discovering us, definitely check out the website. If you have been a frequent listener and you haven't had a chance to check out binallofamerica.com, please do so. You will love it, I'm sure. And that you can find at www.binallofamerica.com. I would be remiss in not mentioning that we have a PayPal button up for donations for folks who want to throw some change in the bucket and help Binall of America Audio keep rolling on down the line. You can click the PayPal button, you can make a donation, and it would help offset some of the expenses that we incur as we produce this remarkable audio series that you have come to know as, Been All of America Audio. Next week, we've got Steve Bassett. He's the founder of the Paradigm Research Group, founder of the X Conference. He's a lobbyist on the UFO issue. He ran for Congress in 2002 on the UFO ticket. He's a key figure in the disclosure movement now. He will be on Manal of America Audio to talk about the Paradigm Research Group being a lobbyist on the UFO issue. His 2002 Congress run on the UFO ticket, we're going to talk all about that. We're going to talk about the X Conference, what it's like to set it up, the business aspects of it. We're going to talk about the big stories in exo-politics for 2005, the Hellier story, the Brazilian Disclosure story, some of the India Daily stories, that strange trend coming out of India, and tons more. And that's just the first installment. This is a massive interview, spanned over three hours. It'll be broken up into two weeks, as we do for our big ones Next week, we'll be talking about all that stuff I just talked about. In two weeks, even more stuff. I'll preview that next week. It's going to be Steve Bassett next week on Banal of America Audio, February 11th, 2006. Until you hear from me then, thanks for listening, folks. This is Tim Banal, signing off.